Hi everyone, my name is Miles Surratt and I serve as the Associate Director of Campus Activities and Events at Clemson University. I'm also happy to be your host for the NASA Leadership Podcast presented by the Student Leadership Program's Knowledge Community. Today we'll continue our series on foundational questions in leadership. Our conversation today will range in a couple of different directions, but we'll focus on the notions of power and authority. My guest today is Dr. Julie Owen. Dr. Owen is an Associate Professor of Leadership and Integrative Studies in the School of Integrative Studies at George Mason University, where she teaches courses on socially responsible leadership, civic engagement, and community-based research. Julie recently served as one of the keynote speakers at the Leadership Educators Institute. She's a scholar for the National Clearinghouse for Leadership Programs and is co-editor of both editions of the Handbook for Student Leadership Development. She's active on several national research team, teams, including serving as the PI of the Multi-Institutional Study of Leadership Institutional Survey, and a research team member with the Leadership Identity Development Project. Dr. Owen completed her undergraduate work at the College of William & Mary and her master's from James Madison University. She holds a Certificate of Nonprofit Administration from Duke University and received her PhD in college student personnel at the University of Maryland. Welcome back, Julie. Yeah, great to return. Yeah, yeah. Uh, happy to, so happy to have you back. There was a lot of, there was a lot of Dr. Owen in there. I think I'm just going to, I think I'm going to call you Dr. Owen for the rest of our conversation. <laughs> like, who, is that? That? <laughs> who is that? Who is that? Who's talking about? Um, my students, actually right. funny story, my students call me Dr. J and I said, oh, like the basketball player. And they say who that, you know, they don't have never heard of Julia Serving. So I feel very yeah, old whenever that comes up, but kind of cool to be Dr. You gotta J. Know, <laughs> you got to know Dr. J, you got that finger roll. Right. <laughs> so, all right. So we'll do our uh, so we'll do our first segment here, which is rapid fire. So I will. I'm going to ask Julie a silly question and limit her to a 30 second response. We're going to we're going to call back uh, to a couple of uh, previously discussed topics with Julie. So, Julie, I think the listeners are dying to know what are you watching on PBS these days? <laughs> you know me too well, Miles. Well, it's actually been a great summer for PBS, in my personal opinion. <laughs> <laughs> They really got into prequels lately, so uh -huh. um, I don't know if they're taking off the Marvel franchise or whatever. But um, so I highly recommend the Prime Suspect prequel Tennyson, um, which is Stephanie Martini as a young Helen Mirren. So if you watch the original, and then there's also new episodes mm -hmm. of Endeavor, starring Sean Morse as Detective Morse, and both take place in the early '60s and are fun to watch. Lots of Cold War intrigue, and then really interesting about how many parallels there are between that time of and what's happening now in our world, right? Mm, and then I don't mm -hmm. know if you're a Grandchester. I think we talked about Grandchester last time, who is this conflicted priest in this small village. And um, that show got way more soapy this season um, with sex and booze and jazz. And my brother <laughs> had the best, um, you know, three-word review of that show. He's like, Grandchester, worst priest ever. So, <laughs> so that's kind of what I've been doing is watching that stuff. And um, I want to make sure you know um, to set your DVR for October 1st for the season three premiere of Poldark because I know last time you did not believe that that was a real show. I don't know if any of these are real. I still am not <laughs> sure that they are. I need to go back after this and actually Google these because I just need to know if you're, if you're pulling the wool over my ass. I need to know. None of them sound real. And <laughs> it's, been a great, it's been a great summer for PBS. I don't think it, I, I've never heard anybody talk about any of those shows. So it might be the only viewership, or maybe everybody's like, you know, um, um, retired folks. Or I'm not sure who else has, has the time to do that, right? <laughs> you know, I do think that there's a possibility that if I brought these up to my dad that he would have watched them. <laughs> so I think that that's very real. He has like a very, very strange worldview that comes from just watching the local news and PBS. <laughs> right. So 
That will shape and, it for you, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and mainly CBS shows that are based in the British Isles. You just really, and growing up in South Carolina, really get to kick out of that British accent. <laughs> All right, so uh, tell us about your travels this summer. Well, I had a great joy of being lots of places this summer, and I think I told you last time about my adventurous mom who's going to see mm-hmm. the world um, and is pretty much gone on 10 or 12 trips a year, and I go on about half of them with her. So I had a great time this summer. We went to the Canadian Rockies, so I don't know if you've been oh. there. Oh, did yeah. you get a Banff? Yes, Banff and Jasper and Yoho National Forest, and they are like the most beautiful places I've ever been. I've never mm. seen any um, Rocky Mountains, and this summer I saw – the Canadian Rockies, and then I actually saw the Alps, which I'd never seen before. So I got my mountain <laughs> certification this summer. But um, mm. So, yeah, so we learned about rock flower. Do you know what rock flower is? No, tell me more. Well, we had a geologist who was what we talked to part of the time, um, but it's actually what gives the lakes up there that amazingly aqua blue color. And mm. so it's just um, that the way that the algaes that live on the rocks and the way that they actually decompose turns like reflects the light in a certain particular way, which is why the difference between a like clear blue lake and a green lake and a whatever. That's the extent mm. of my geology right there. <laughs> so that was fantastic. Apparently everybody in Student Affairs is in the Canadian Rockies right now um, on Facebook. I've seen multiple groups of people up there. McGoldis and Patty Perillo, and I know that um, Marcy Levy-Shankman's been up there. So it's like all roads lead to the Canadian Rockies. Canadian Rockies, so hot right now. (laughs) That's right. Hmm. Where did you go in the Alps? Um, we, I was in Austria, so the second half of the summer, I did a Danube, like a very bougie Danube cruise, um, Mm. stopping in Czech Republic and Slovakia and Hungary. Again, like that's the most fascinating like post-communist development and watching some of those like Bratislava um, in Slovakia thinking about how that place has changed for, in response to tourism and, um, and this, how their um, economies are still so depressed um, and compared, to, uh, compared to just right across the border in Germany and Austria and things like that. So it was super fun. But my highlight of that trip was watching my mom. Um, we were at an outdoor cafe and ran into a stag party of a bunch of guys from Liverpool. And they, mm. <laughs> anyway, interesting conversations ensued. It was hysterical. It was one of the funniest mm. things I've ever seen in my life was watching my mom uh, verbally spar with these fantastic stag partiers. <laughs> so, mm. <laughs> have you been to that yeah, region w- before? Well, no, but I well, I've been to the Alps before. I went this summer. This is my first time ever leaving the country, except for uh, this one time that I went to Niagara Falls. And uh, I already told you about Niagara uh, Falls. <laughs> yeah, look, I'm ready to go. I love Niagara. So um, the we were in we went to Munich for a couple of days, and I I wasn't even aware of the phrase stag and hen parties until I saw something <laughs> on the outside of a beer garden that specifically talked about how the stag and hen parties were prohibited there due to issues of bench drinking. I was like, mm. <laughs> You'd know that if you watch more PBS, I promise you. Oh, gosh. Well, you know, <laughs> yet, a, yet another reason to see if you're making these TV shows up. So. And I got a great picture of a sign. One of the bars in Munich had a sign that said, the most sexist place to party. And I think they meant sexiest, <laughs> what the sign said. The most <laughs> sexiest place to party, which I plan to share with my women in leadership class this fall. So. Yeah. 
I imagine they would like. It. I imagine they would like that joke. <laughs> I I liked it too. I'm just not always very giving with my laughter, but I think that that's very fun. Awesome. All right. So last time you were on the podcast, we discussed your self perception of being competent in many things and a master of none. You called this the dabbler merit badge. Have you dabbled anything new since the last time we talked? <laughs> well, it all still applies. So yeah. Uh, master of none, that's me. Um, well, so I think the merit badge I won this summer is the tomato merit badge. So here's what I've learned this summer. I've, I'm a much failed gardener over the years, and I learned mm. the secret to successful gardening, which um, does not involve like what I usually do, which is like fussing over the plants and fertilizing them and pruning them and watering them. It actually involves leaving the country for six weeks in a row <laughs> mm. and coming mm-hmm. home and having like the world's best tomato crop ever. So I don't know what that's about, but <laughs> there's something there about inaction breeds uh, results. <laughs> so I'm just mm. going to put that in my dabbler merit badge category. But dabbling for Yeah. How about so you? Gardening you is, about not, about, is about not trying very hard. That's, that well, that's, I mean, I'm sure real gardeners would give me crap about that, but um, <laughs> mm. it really worked for me this summer. How about you? Have you pickled? Last time we talked about your pickling hobby. Have you pickled anything lately? No. No, not yet. We're we're in the process of moving. I did I did uh, make my partner promise that once we moved that I could get a pressure canner so I can really devote myself this fall. So <laughs> I think I think that's going to happen. I think I'm going to get a. I think I'm going to ask for a for a pressure canner for the holidays this year. So that's that's awesome. what I'm hoping for. Really, really take it up to the next level because there's really good fruit um, in uh, in South Carolina where we're moving and. So uh, it'll be it'll be great to have the pressure canner because then you can preserve things like peaches and strawberries. I was just gonna say peaches. Send me a jar of peaches, please. Peach preserves. Thank you. <laughs> well, okay, we'll do that. I don't make preserves. Though. I'm not a big jam guy. I just oh. never gotten into it. Yeah, but I, I'll I'll can some peaches and send them to you. Just so there's no sugar in there when you can it then. Uh, no, you don't have to if you oh. do. Um, you don't have to if you have a pressure canner. I think I'm not. Don't quote me on that. If anybody gets botulism <laughs> because of this, it's not. Make sure to make sure to read your uh, read your work. My favorite book is called Put 'Em Up. Um, make sure to check in on that. But okay. I think yeah, it's maybe lightly sugared or something. But um, you don't have to have if you do the sort of traditional water bath method. It has to be the um, the uh, brining liquid has to be. Um, has to be uh, acidic enough, and so there's several things that you wouldn't want to be acidic enough, like say peaches or uh, even pesto. You can't can pesto without a pressure canner, for really? another example. So yeah, mm-hmm. I also freeze my pesto in little, you know, ice cube tray cubes. Yeah, yeah, I do that too, and a lot of people do that, and that's definitely the the right way to do it. But I think that that has that's like gone out into the world as a thing that you do because you can't can it. Because so. you can't can it. Can, can, can or can't can, 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 can. Do you remember that old pun? No, I'm not familiar with that. I'm not okay. familiar with that tongue twister. All right, so, uh, so for my last question in rapid fire, is this a good time for you to give what I will describe as the irritatingly self-depreciating note about your alleged lack of expertise on the topic that we're discussing today? <laughs> oh, you flattered me, Miles. No, I, um, I just want to give a note to all the listeners about be careful about recommending podcast topics to you because you might end up commenting on them yourself. <laughs> so, there are certainly many other people who have devoted lots more time and energy to exploring the nature and sources of power. Um, but, of course, you know, I teach about power and try to surface issues of power in my classroom, but it's certainly not an area of deep research for me. So honest, true note of lack of knowledge is inserted here. 
You took slight – I thought you were just totally going to say that you were incompetent and shouldn't be talking about this. So <laughs> then, I, I thought you were just going to really give, a, you know, give everybody the wrong perception about your, <laughs> about your knowledge here. So I feel like you took, you took a little bit more uh, credit than I thought that you would, which I'm very happy about. Well, do you know, uh, my Myers-Briggs is ENTJ, and one of the descriptions of that is often more confident than abilities warrant. Oh, is that right? Yeah, it's like a scathing indictment of ENTJs, um, and it's very true. Mm. It's weird. I can do that, and then I'm like, no, I have no idea how to do that. So, yeah, I've uh, never really known my Myers Briggs, uh, Myers Myers Briggs, but uh, I is I don't know which one is plural, but um, one of my coworkers, who's now a career coach at GW, has been really trying to convince me that I'm an introvert, not an extrovert, recently. Oh. So. Yeah, one time she kind of catfished me with a question that I didn't think was related to that. And then she was like, see, I told you you're an introvert. I knew it. And I was like, what? I'm just answering your question. It was like at lunch. We hadn't even talked about it for a while. She really, really surprised me. I love it. I have a student, so sometimes I'll ask them what their letters are. And one kid was like, yeah, I did that. I'm like a TGIF. (laughs) It's like one of my all-time favorite student responses. I'm like, you are a TGIF. That's exactly your buyer's phrase. You, you are such a TGIF. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> all right, so we're going to transition to, a, to a, uh, a segment that I'm calling One Big Leadership Conversation. So as noted in the podcast with Scott Allen on leadership and management, the topic of power and authority, you know, comparable to leadership and management is not solvable or – able to be summarized adequately. So I'm basically sending Julie off on an impossible mission here. Uh, so Julie, are you ready? As ready as I will be. All right, great. So, so just to establish a baseline for our conversation here for folks, what is your definition of power? So this is good to like sort of think through and try to put words on this. Um, but I would say power is the ability to influence others. Now, many people also think that's a definition of leadership. Um, in fact, some people say leadership equals influence. So I'm not sure. Um, but I like to say that the power to influence, uh, ability, power is the ability to influence others. And as, if you're a good student affairs person, you read French and Raven from 1959, the social sources of power, where they said there's a wide variety of sources of power, from what you know, like information or expert power, to who you know, which can be reference power, to position power, to the power to punish or reward, et cetera. So what we do know is, the power's ability to influence others, people can hold a wide variety of levels and types of power depending on their roles, their contexts, and even I would add their identities will shape how their the perception of their power. So that's how I'm gonna mm. that's what I'm gonna stand for around power. Okay. All right, so same deal. What is authority? And so I tend to think of authority as conferred power, which is more like the formal right to make decisions that comes from holding a position or office. Now I've also found readings um, that say the exact opposite of what I'm saying here. They say authority is personal and power is conferred. But I really think power, um, you can have power without position, but authority is sort of legitimized power, right? So authority mm-hmm. can be articulated and designated as in this is the scope of your authority, your authority ends here. But people rarely say here's a limit of your power, <laughs> right? Or your power ends here. So to me, I think power is the more personal kind of thing where authority is sort of a more formal version. But then I started thinking about moral authority and other things like that, and that makes it all more blurry. But I'm, that's what I'm going to go with for this conversation. 
<laughs> okay. All right. So I'm going to ask you a question that we didn't plan for uh, based on your first response there. Uh, so if you uh, don't want to speak extemporaneously on this, we can, uh, we can cut this out on the back end. But uh, so you mentioned, and, and we sort of didn't preface this at the beginning, but you mentioned that your definition of power is sometimes what people describe as the definition of leadership. So mm -hmm. how, would you, how would you describe the necessity of talking about power and authority in relation to leadership? Oh, I think it's essential. Um, you know, we go back to Machiavelli, you know, who really examines it better be feared or loved. I think leaders are always kind of facing that tension, and we're going to talk about paradoxes in a minute, I think. But um, so to me, um, you know, and then we've got the power, was it Lord Acton? Power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. Um, and so to me, when we're talking about leadership, um, it is part and parcel of power and influence. Um, I don't know. I, do you, what do you think the definition, definition, the difference is between power and influence? Those to me are more synonymous. Like I now I'm putting you on the spot. Between power and influence? Yeah. Um, I think that, well, I think that influence is probably even more personal than power. Mm -hmm. um, and I think influence is... Um, I think I find influence, I, I have always thought of influence to be more relational. Like I think of mm -hmm, influence mm -hmm. as being like one-on-one -on -one or, uh, you know, sort of a, 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 a like a micro environment of mm -hmm. power is kind of how I've always thought about it. But I don't know. That is certainly Yeah, I agree. I just uh, worried that I was like doing that thing your teacher didn't want you to do where you define a word with a synonym for the word. But <laughs> 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 like maybe saying power is the ability to influence <laughs> was a little bit of a cheat around. Um, but I do know, I mean, there are folks, like I said, who say leadership is influence. Or people, Denny Roberts has this beautiful definition, leadership is conviction in action. Mm. Um, so there's something there, where, you know, what's also the role of conviction in your belief system in how, what you're influencing for and what you have power over. Um, I think that's something to consider as well. Hmm. All right, so how do you see the concepts of, power and authority as being similar and or distinct? I think we kind of talked about that, right? So, you know, if power is I'm going to influence something, um, here's a, well, so I'm going to return your question with a question. Is power something that's only held by an individual? Because I also think that sometimes we can institutionalize power or organize, organizations yield a certain kind of power that's above and beyond just the individuals within it. So some of it is in wrestling with whether these are individualized phenomenon or not. Um, so anyway, as of power is influence, and then I also think authority um, as power granted or conferred are legitimized by holding a particular role or position. So I can have all kinds of power and zero authority. And I guess mm -hmm. occasionally I could have authority. I don't know if I, I can't have authority without power because you have position power just by nature of being in a positional kind of place. Yeah, I suppose so. I don't know. I mean, I, I, I have seen instances just in lived experience where I've seen people with, who have like, who have, I don't know, it depends on, you know, it depends on how much credence you give to the idea of positional power, I suppose. I've seen, I mean, I've seen people before, like in very real terms, who had positional authority, but they had like very, very little actual actual influence, perhaps. Maybe you can have, you know, or maybe leadership, you have certainly, power. Right. People who manage mm -hmm. who aren't effective leaders. Um, mm -hmm. But I do think they're going to have the ability to give or take resources and rewards. Mm -hmm. 
just if you are deemed as having authority over a certain area, person, et cetera. Um, so even if they're ineffectual in how they exercise power, mm -hmm. they still have it as part of the position. I wish, yeah, call yeah. I wish it was a call-in show. We could have people call in and sort of <laughs> give their own versions. Yeah, we could do that. We could do this live. That would be possible. <laughs> next, time, next time I loop you in and make you do this, we'll do it as a call-in okay, show. Okay, we'll, great. Uh, the wisdom we'll, is out there. Someone knows the answer to this conundrum here. Somebody, yeah, someone's yelling at their, someone, yeah. you know, when, <laughs> their computer. <laughs> yeah, they're yelling at it like, oh, my gosh, nothing's more annoying than listening to a podcast where people are like, well, it could be this. <laughs> so, uh, all right. So uh, can you share how you've seen the concepts of power and authority play out in the high-stakes game of star power? <laughs> I love star power. I don't know if, um, you know, young listeners, people not born in the 70s, actually know what this is. So it's, um, it's a uh, simulation, a leadership simulation designed in the 70s um, by this guy called Gary Schertz. And to me, it really is one of the few things that, um, from that era that really has staying power, like the lessons that it gives in a very short period of time are so valuable that I always try to carve out time in my courses or in my programs to put students through this exercise. So basically, I'm going to give you a brief summary, and then I'm going to tell you how power shows up that I've seen this. I've probably played this game hundreds of times with tons of different kinds of um, participants, from students in classes to nonprofit workers to administrators, et cetera. So um, basically at the beginning of the game, you draw a bunch of chips from a bag and you have to trade with each other and kind of get, establish a score. So it's sort of randomized about what chips you get and then there's some kind of skill involved in how you trade. Um, and then you're sorted into three different categories based on your scores. So approximately like the upper group that has the higher scores, the middle scores, and the lower scores. Um, and then you learn pretty quickly that these approximate with class level. So, um, um, and we do a little bit like if you've ever been to a hunger banquet, like the people with the high scores sit at a nice table and get snacks, and people in the middle sit in chairs in a circle, and then all the people with the lowest scores sit on the floor and are kind of treated rudely. Um, and what, but what students don't know about this game, the trick is that there's multiple rounds of trading, and after, and just like in real life, um, depending on where you sit, you draw a different hand. So students who are in the upper group keep getting more and more power <laughs> because they are drawing from a bag that has more of the better, more high-scoring chips in it. And the students who are in the lowest groups um, continue to sort of be marginalized, and they start to you know, think ill of themselves, I'm really terrible at this game, or this game is stupid, or they check out sometimes. Um, a few mm -hmm. times I've had um, those groups kind of rise up and try to seize power. That's another conversation. Um, but it's a really interesting conversation about um, why the middle class colludes with the upper class, like they, they're so close that they can taste and sort of the access into mm -hmm. a different kind of realm. Um, and instead of like they could actually bond with the lower class because all the numbers are there. So it's also done in percentages of society. Um, so it's really interesting to think about behavior of human beings in a system that naturally stratifies them economically or politically. So at some point in the game, you stop the game and say, you know, who's having fun, it's always the people who have the cookies and the cushy chairs, right? And who's miserable, the people on the floor who can't seem to win this game. Um, and so I said, well, let's, do, let's have a chance to like sort of remake these rules or rethink the rules of this game. Um, and so just like in life, sort of the middle and upper class have more say in the rules, and those are disenfranchised can propose kinds of additions, but it's really up to the ruling class but whether those new rules get established. So here's where power mm -hmm. comes in for this is just, again, like I said, I probably more than 100 times for sure I've done a simulation 
And I've never one time, not one time, not with social justice peer educators, not with um, community service learning peers, not with you know, um, vice presidents of student affairs, have I ever seen someone in the game like substantially disrupt their own power um, at this point in the game. Almost always they do a lot of complicated maneuverings and change the points of the game and things really look more equitable, but rarely do they actually redistribute power in any significant ways. Um, so to me it's such an insight into why all of this is really hard and important as we talk about it. Um, is if we can't do this in the context of 60 minutes with some snacks at stake, <laughs> like <laughs> how does this ever happen sort of in the real world? Um, it's going to be really devastating too. I've had um, students cry at their own kind of complicity, you know. They were having a great time and then they later they realized, you know, when we do the debriefing, they're like, oh my God, I did that. and. Why did I do that? And that's against everything I believe in. And so it can be really emotional um, when they have this. But it really, really makes sort of the subtle, insidious um, nature of power sort of come, become very visible in a short period of time. Have you ever done this simulation? No, no, I haven't. But since we talked about it, I did. I told you that I thought I had it. I did find it at yeah. my desk. So it's, uh, you know, I have, I have not done it. Um, you say it's by a guy named Gary Schertz, like a T-shirt? Yes, yes. Mm. Yeah, he's a few of them. I think he um, that same there was a company called Simulation Training Systems or something in the '70s, and they did several of these. Um, Where do you draw the line? It's an ethics game that I have adapted mm. still in play. Um, the other thing I like to do is at the debrief, I say, "How is this game not like the real world?" Right? Like you always have somebody smarter. I have many sort of libertarians who are like, well, you could make more chips in the real world. You know, this game has a finite number of resources. Or, so it's fun to sort of have students mm. analyze what are the limits of these kinds of simulations. Um, but doesn't, to me, that doesn't undercut the effectiveness of the exercise. Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting thinking. Uh, I mean, it's interesting to hear that, you know, even with folks who are naturally inclined to that sort of impulse mm -hmm. in the real world that they – just yeah, I, I think the the conclusion of you know like if we can't do that when snacks are at stake, how can we imagine that power, <laughs> power would be distributed equally if a lot more than snacks are at stake? So. It also shows that um, there's one point in the game where you each group gets some chips, and the sort of impulse is to be equitable and give everybody an extra little bonus, but the groups that are more savvy sort of put all their chips to one person, so they actually get to move up in the class level. Mm -hmm. And they're draw they don't know this, but then they're drawing from a different bag. And so it's really interesting about access and opportunity versus sort of fairness and equity. And um, like, so you have somebody move from the lower class into the middle class. Do they remember where they came from? Do they get snacks and give them to their peers? Or do they sort of now I've arrived and I forget you? And so it's, it's really interesting how that plays out too over the course of the game when people, a few people who are socially sort of mobile across those groups, um, and what happens. Mhm. Mm yeah. Um, all right, so I know that you and I, I suppose lots of people draw on the work of Paolo Freire in, uh, in this discussion, uh, particularly the pedagogy of the oppressed. So can you give a, a quick summary of, of that particular work and any thoughts on how that might be applied in a college setting? I love this question, Miles. I will definitely not attempt to summarize pedagogy that <laughs> in this podcast. Um, although it made me wonder if there's like cliff notes or spark notes on that book and how terrible that would be because 
part of the joy is really wrestling with the complexity and the nuance of the argument. Like it's some, to me, it was a life transformational experience reading it. It's sort of, you're like, resist, resist, this is difficult, and then it sort of unfolded, and you, I don't know, I almost felt like it worked on my own con- critical consciousness. <laughs> but, so, so that cannot happen. Is, I'm sure that cannot happen in the Glyph Note version. <laughs> you're, not, you're not here to give a three-minute uh, response that would uh, discourage people from reading because they got all the information. <laughs> is that what you're saying? Well, and I would never be able to do it justice, <laughs> so that's not going to – but I'm sure, I'm sure there are spark notes. I don't know. I'm sure there are notes out there. But so here what I will tell you. So Freire, who was – I don't know if it's Freire Freire. Um, but he's a Brazilian educator and a philosopher who was sort of a leading advocate of critical pedagogy, and he really was critical of traditional sort of banking models of education where the power, those in power controlled the narrative and inculcates their views into those um, that they are teaching, and said so that's only going to sort of replicate existing power structures. And so it's like the only way to sort of have liberation is um, for a dialogic process whereby the oppressed regain their sense of humanity and in turn overcome their own condition. And so the thing that was an aha moment for me, and I don't know like if, if you read this, but it was this idea that the oppressed must author their own liberation, which seems like so wrong. Like how can I work on behalf of others if the oppressed must actually liberate themselves? And so to me, it's all about the stuff that we're talking about here today. Um, Freire had an interesting, I pulled out a quote here. It says, any situation in which some men prevent others from engaging in the process of inquiry is one of violence. To alienate humans from their own decision-making is to change them into objects. So he's saying that much of our education is really objectification in nature um, and is about sort of faculty maintain power over, you know, is it power over your students and then what that means when you sort of say this is what, learning looks like and this is what you have to learn, whether it's curricular or co-curricular, um, that he says we're actually doing violence to people when we do that. Instead of sort of centering the subject matter, which is what Parker Palmer, my other hero, would say, is putting the subject in the center of the classroom and then all interrogating it from our own lenses and perspectives. So I don't know if you have a reaction to that, but um, to me it's, there's lots here about the misuse of power um, and how we replicate systems of oppression in the way we teach programs. Hmm. Yeah, well, I think about that specifically related to, you know, I mean, I always sort of think about that in relation to how we, you know, how we talk about and think about leadership and who's being left out of, you know, I mean, John would refer to it as the story, you know, most often told or mm-hmm. John refer- referencing somebody else, I can't remember, but, you know, um, you know, I think think about that, uh, think about that as well relation, related to leadership and um you know, I, I think that that's a real, I think that's a real challenge of leadership that isn't going away anytime soon, and is certainly not contained to the, you know, to the academic or co-curricular study of leadership. So. Well, it's really insidious because it's stuff that sounds good, like this idea of grit ideology that's so popular in schools. Like, how do we give kids grit so they persist better? It sounds good, but actually, that's a fix that's again rooted in the problem with the disenfranchised people instead of there's a systemic issue why these people aren't valued. And I have a colleague that I have the great fortune to work with, Paul Gorski. People should look him up. He has a website called EdChange. But he really does tons of sort of social justice education with K-12 teachers, continuing Ferry's work. And he actually is really critical about some of this kind of stuff. He's like, how are you actually threatening inequity in your work, right? So he's like, do you have the tools and knowledge and even the political will to sort of spend your privilege to create systemic change. So we ask really, really hard questions. 
but I love this mm-hmm. idea that everybody has some potentially some kinds of privileges, some areas where they're more privileged than others, even if it's educational privilege or uh, gender privilege or whatever, and how are you using that privilege in the service of redistributing power and creating more equity? Um, and so to me, I wrestle with that a lot, and I think about that a whole bunch. Um, so anyway, I don't know, I think this all connects to leadership. Afrari actually said about leaders, leaders who do not act dialogically but insist on imposing their decisions, do not organize the people, they manipulate them. They do not liberate, nor are they liberated, they oppress. And so we mm. see this so much in the classroom, especially I see this a lot with newer faculty who are, have anxiety that they aren't ex, don't have expertise in the content area, and mm-hmm. so they overperform about having to know all the answers, and really that becomes a very stifling way um, again, it's imposing their beliefs on others instead of inviting them to the table to have a conversation and dialogue about what the, putting the subject at the center. So, like, how do we sort of continue to do that? But it often comes from fear is my thing. You know, people act and use their power, abuse their power um, when they're afraid of being found out or they're, <laughs> um, um, you know, I think they have some personal feeling of, not, of not being worthy, et cetera, that gets played out in these places and spaces. Oh, yeah, sure. No, I think that that's absolutely, I mean, as someone who has facilitated many things that I felt, you know, who I was operating from a place of insecurity, um, you know, whether it be in, you know, in curricular, co-curricular settings or, you know, or, you know, even on this podcast, it's easier to try to sort of like highly, highly control and, and maintain uh, maintain the discussion when you when you feel like you're off, like operating from a place of fear or insecurity or from a place of informational asymmetry, you know. Absolutely, and then, but I also then I was sort of had a corrective experience last year. We had Stephen Brookfield, who was another hero, <laughs> come to talk to us at Mason, and he said this all only works if people are developmentally ready for this kind of learning. And so he shared this hilarious experience where he had never been whitewater rafting before. And he said, mm-hmm. if I'd gone to the whitewater rafting class, the first, you know, to take the little lecture before we go on the raft, and the guy said, we're all going to figure this out together, <laughs> you know. Just put the subject to the center and ask questions as you feel able. And I don't have any expertise or knowledge, like how incredibly disconcerting that is when you actually have no knowledge <laughs> around something mm-hmm. and how dangerous that could be. And so, um, and then we're talking about technical versus adaptive challenges too. There's some hyphets in here as well. But um, that's a good correction that this is, a, is kind of a higher order conversation. Or how are people prepared to sort of wrestle um, and take power in the classroom. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I think that that's right. I, in my, I, we had a, a, a real learning experience kind of on that front, not as, uh, you know, I, I think that that whitewater rationing experience is a really, is a really great example, but we had a kind of similar experience happen that, that I think is related at, um, uh, in my uh, in my previous portfolio at, at GW, I was responsible for the outdoor leadership programs there. Oh and, yeah, and um, and, um, and I went with a, a member of the the team there to present at an outdoor ed conference uh, last November, and we came in talking about uh, you know the the uh, creating a holistic program that could make uh, outdoor learning on your campus um, it, to make a holistic program, uh, curricular and co-curricular program. Uh, as, as inclusive as possible. And we rolled in there with, you know, lessons that we had learned and, you know, coming sort of in the, the hard way, like, you know, the, the lessons that we had learned the hard way and came in with, you know, 
what I think would have been tough, like a tough conversation, even for like a like a student affairs audience and and we're just like coming in you know throwing that out and asking hard questions related to you know like why as an outdoor educator are you doing this trip to scotland you know like i think mm -hmm. you've got to interrogate all of your assumptions about that are you going to scotland because you yourself want to go to scotland mm -hmm. you know and is it the right thing and the most equitable thing for your community to devote the finite resources that you have to subsidize a trip to scotland for folks who could probably almost pay for scotland by themselves or you know and and that was just not a um, – we realized afterwards that folks just weren't quite at a – you know, it's just a different field with a different set of norms and a different set of expectations. And, and we sort of came in with our, like, very student affairs lens on, on you know, expectations and norms related to, related to issues of, you know, issues of diversity and inclusion and equity. And the, the outdoor community was just not at that place. So it was a, it was a pretty, pretty fascinating discussion. Well, and what, what, and when should they be there, right? Like, this is part of, you know, like our mandate for the future is like, how do we treat? And I think what John's doing with this, Dugan, with the leadership, cultivating critical perspectives. But we, in some ways, we need to invite all people to the table about cultivating their own critical perspective. So, yeah, maybe you overshot, but um, people need to be involved in their own work before they work with others. You know, anybody who works in these kinds of capacities or interact with others. You inflict your biases, your privileges, your blind spots onto those around you just by being a human. So like how are you how do you take ownership for being aware of what those are and working to challenge your own sort of assumptions and stereotypes? It seems like that's our life's work in some ways. And to me it's like mm -hmm. the work we do is constantly about working to identify and then shed ego <laughs> and then also to sort of um yeah, and engage and try to get to this critical consciousness stuff that Rarity mm -hmm. talks about. So it sounds like you tried, and maybe the group wasn't there yet, but who knows what seed you planted that um, caused someone to do some reflection and maybe some correction. Yeah, yeah. I don't have any regret about the content or about the presentation or even our conclusions. I, I think I just would have scaffolded things a little bit more to make mm -hmm. sure that folks, you know, I, I just I think that we sort of, Came in a little hot and could have, you know, could have, <laughs> could have eased their way into the mm -hmm. into the com conversation a little bit. So, uh, but I mean, that's a that is a field in particular that you know, student affairs has a uh, is is certainly in, uh, you know in no ways perfect in the world you know in the world of intercultural confidence, but you know it it uh, has laps run around the the outdoor ed field. Um, so, uh, you know. Yeah, no regrets about no regrets about the content. So I'm glad that we glad that we did it, and could be some could be some good seeds out there. We'll see. At the time, there were some uh, there were some faces that weren't thrilled. So. <laughs> You're provocateur. It's good to be a provocateur. <laughs> yeah, not normally, but you know, it's, uh, it's not, I don't normally have a uh, much of an adversarial personality, but I I had some things to say. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, okay. So, in our preparation for the, this discussion, you also mentioned Conan and Genovese's work on the paradoxes of leadership. Uh, I won't ask you to summarize that because <laughs> you maybe contextualize that for us a bit. So, I don't know if folks have heard of this book. Um, it's called Leadership Matters. It came out in 2012. I think it won the International Leadership Association's Book of the Year. Um, and the first chapter of that book is something any leadership educator should read. And actually, I use it. Um, it lists all these sort of paradoxes of leadership. It's a great discussion starter with students to like 
hand out these little slips of paper with the paradoxes on them and have them debate them or sort of it really debunks this idea that there there's a common that common sense views about leadership, right? There's common sense views on many sides of these paradoxes, which I'll give you some here in a second. So this conversation about power made me think about um, some of these things. So for an an example, an easy grab one is self-confidence versus humility. So effective leadership involves self-confidence and sometimes fearless optimism. However, we also want leaders who are humble, have self-doubt, and (laughs) self-control, right? Mm -hmm. So like, Mm -hmm. what's the appropriate balance between that? Um, So they keep asking these questions, and the one to me that really... Um, talks about power and authority and representation is their paradox of self-confidence. I mean, is a represent, representative yet not too representative. And so we have this idea that leaders must be representative. They must sort of represent the views of their constituents. They must sort of surface their ideas and have shared vision, um, consult and engage followers. Yet they also must um, sort of be provocative, educate, motivate, and uh, um, unlock new and exciting visions. So like what's that right line with power about responsiveness and dare we say even say leadership? Um, and this made me think of a book that Georgia Sorensen and James McGregor Burns wrote many moons ago in the 90s sometime called Dead Center and was about Clinton and that um, Bill Clinton's leadership was a failure in Burns's mind because of this too much representation. So, you know, Clinton's legislation would come out around seatbelts. There should be a seatbelt law, a mandatory seatbelt law, and that's something that all the polls had said people were for. So there wasn't much leadership that was not sort of pre-measured sort of measured or endorsed um, by sort of political polling to be acceptable. And so, you know, we get to this place about evolutionary versus revolutionary leadership and what does it take? So I don't know what your thoughts are on that about um, – you know, these paradoxes of leadership and how do people sort of represent those they work with and inclusiveness, and yet they also have bold, bold transformational visions. <laughs> like, what do you do with that? I mean, I think, uh, I think that, you know, anecdotally from like, lived experience, you can feel that you, you can like feel the tug and pulls of those paradoxes all the time. You know, I mean, I, I think it is a, I think that the the balance of what that means is is such a challenge. You know, I also imagine, you know, talking about James McGregor Burns, I feel like he always ends in this world where he's like, I just imagine him like sort of sitting around in like a dark room with a candle being like, good leader, bad leader. You know, he's got some <laughs> tablet and it's like, oh, I think good, oh, I think bad. He's like the Santa Claus of leadership? Is that what you're saying here? <laughs> yeah, maybe. Yeah, there's always, you know, well, I mean. A naughty and nice list, right? right? You know, yeah. <laughs> I, there's just always like some sort of big, you know, these books that not leader, not leadership itself, but like all yeah. of his. All the other ones, right? Stories. Pretty much everything yeah, else. Yeah, it's like, yeah. Mm, FDR, good leader. <laughs> I imagine it to be like a gas tank. Uh, so, anyway, a lot, of, a lot of visions. But, yeah, no, I mean, I think. I think there is something inherently true about that idea of those, about the idea of those paradoxes, you know, and you feel that, you know, you, you know, you like want to push in one direction. It's like, whoa, you know, you like want to push in one direction because it's expected that you lead, you know, that mm-hmm. you're, you know, having this vision and it's like, whoa, but like whose voices were left out of this decision? It's like, but I'm supposed to lead. And <laughs> it's like, no, but really those, those voices like really need to be included so, you know, I mean, there's there's all sorts of things like that. I feel like, um, you know, the 
confident versus, you know, confidence versus humble thing is mm-hmm. such a, you know, such like a very real thing. You need to take credit, but not too much credit. Mm-hmm. You need to be, you know, you need to be bold, but like not too bold. You know, I mean, it's just, there's, there's so many of Complicated those. Complicated stuff. The one that reminds me most about our current sort of political situation, no matter what your political beliefs are, is that we're like in this really divisive moment in politics. And they talk, Cronin uh, and Genevieve talk about unifiers and dividers. So like leaders need to unify mm-hmm. their organizations or communities through effective negotiation alliance building, yet they also have to stir up and jolt their organizations out of complacency, right? <laughs> so like mm-hmm. um, I do think that Trump probably is, I mean, he's doing really 110%, right, about jolting people <laughs> and uh, you know, bringing attention to things and then sort of like what does that mean for divisiveness, right? And so where is the leadership commitment to unification and um, reaching across difference, which we know is one of the um, multi-institutional study of leadership key findings that promotes leadership for social justice and social change is the ability to take perspective another. So like how do we teach our students sort of that ability to multi-frame thinking, trans and interdisciplinary thinking, um, um, and so I don't know. I think we more than, and what the MSL folks we talk about is anywhere you do that, it's leadership development. So no matter where you are on campus, if you're helping people engage in sustained dialogue across difference and about difference, um, and teaching people to see perspectives that aren't ones they naturally own, that is just huge to the effectiveness of our future generations. All right, so I'll get off my soapbox now. But, <laughs> but that, I've had that unifier divider. You know, that's another one. It's all about power. I mean, once you have, maybe this is more about authority even. Maybe once you have authority, what's your responsibility to sort of unify versus divide those around you? Mm. Yeah. All right. So my next question is, how do you think the performative aspects of power influence our perceptions of the concept? like deep questions for, you know, an August <laughs> podcast conversation, Miles. Um, so I think I try to remember, I think you and I got to this point with our discussion on empowerment. And I haven't seen much on this, but when I came up in the 90s, there was a fascinating pushback on the whole idea of empowerment. Like, is empowerment really possible? Can anyone really be empowered or give power to others. And I think, you know, I think we're at a time right now that merits like a return to that conversation Um, because we throw that word around a lot, you know, and in my more critical moments, I think empowerment is a term that serves those who already have access to some kind of power, (laughs) right? Mm -hmm. And I'm going to go back to the sort of grit ideology and lean in is the example I think of because I teach women in leadership, but this idea of self-empowerment. So lean in is like, you know, just work harder. You should just, um, she actually has a chapter called find a good partner. <laughs> it's just, okay, I wish, you know, that would be great. Um, but this idea that people who are disenfranchised also should be the ones who fix everything rather than asking for any kind of systemic or structural changes to deal with inequity. So, the word empowerment sometimes was like, you know, empowerment maybe if people already have power and those are truly disenfranchised. There's no way I, we're going to really give them, like what do people really need to become empowered? Access, social, social and cultural capital. Um, and as we saw in the star power conversation, no one's giving that away, not even for, to protect their cookies, <laughs> right? Much less true power. So what do we do about that? And then there's this other part of empowerment that's sort of creeping commercial overtones to me, like use this, XYZ brand of soap and then you're a empowered female (laughs) or like there's some weird things where people are trying to sell you something to to have this identity of empowerment which is also kind of icky so I don't know I've just been mulling about all that I don't know what your thoughts are on empowerment and um, 
And I want to get to false empowerment too in a second. But. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that you it's interesting. I mean, you get in these situations because sometimes you think about like a it's kind of a question of how much a word means, mm -hmm. you know, and like how much which comes up a lot in sort of like departmental strategic planning or like visioning processes where people get, you know, can get very, very in the weeds on their, you know, on their wordsmithing game. And, you know, there's big debates about student engagement versus student involvement versus, you know, all, you know, all mm -hmm. other options that I'm forgetting at the moment. And um, student activities, you know, would be an example. And, uh, you know, and I've seen empowerment, I think, in particular is a is an interesting word because it does well I mean it has the word power in it, right? So it, it's yeah. this idea of conveying power, you know, conveying power to other people, but you have to be in a place of power in order, you know, in order to do that. So I guess too, there's like questions about whether that concept itself is like paternalistic. So. That's exactly where it's going. Or yeah, is it, it I mean there is a little ickiness of that. Like has anybody ever actually been empowered for an empowerment program? And this is where I'd love a Colin show again. <laughs> like call us right now if you have or like if you've seen those kinds of programs be successful. But, you know, what people need is cultural capital and social capital <laughs> like access and um uh some of that kind of stuff. And I don't think you get that in like a semester long empowerment or hour long oh. Yeah, or hour long workshop, right? <laughs> yeah, or just event on campus. So now I'm going to contradict myself because I just sort of tore apart empowerment. But I also think we see a lot of false empowerment, and this maybe is more mm. towards the professionals, you know, listening. But um, like, how often you've been invited to like sort of have an inclusive, collaborative conversation about a decision that's already been decided, right? <laughs> or like, where um, people are invited to give feedback on ideas that are never really considered. And so, I do think also people use empowerment as a way to placate people. Mm -hmm. um, um, it's a way to feel like you're part of something when the power is still actually more authority and it's all person-centered and the person making the decision. Um, I don't know if you've experienced that, but I, I feel like that happens all the time, sort of false inclusion. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I think you can, you can sort of, overanalyze the term empowerment itself and you can it, but I mean like real genuine empowerment is still you know like perhaps there is like a real genuine transfer of power in there what you're talking about false empowerment you know mm -hmm. if you know if you bring people in the room and the actual you know if the like authority dynamics in the room prevent the power dynamics from actually shifting to make mm -hmm. you know like voices actually heard in a decision then you know there's not much of a point in that other than you know, I mean, that's kind of, a, I, I, I suppose that's kind of a form of tokenism in a way. Mm -hmm, so, mm -hmm. Yeah. So, all right. So my last question for you, what do you want to make sure that student affairs practitioners are discussing with students about power and authority? Ugh, all of this stuff, right? <laughs> um, I, I feel like we've had a wide-ranging conversation this afternoon. Um, I think all these ideas would be great to discuss and debate with students, you know, and we can agree that power is present in all relationships, right? Like we all have different access to different kinds of power, different levels of power, but any relationship involves kind of a power dimension. So in, I, I would like to ask students themselves, like in what way do they, like what are their sources of power? And wh where do they feel powerful? Um, in what ways do they feel disenfranchised? Um, I would like to teach them about 
the danger of concentrated power <laughs> and its potential for abuse. Um, and then I think we talked a little bit about some of the student activist movements right now and sort of needing a second level of activism, which is it's amazing that students are able to sort of organize and sort of articulate where their needs are not met. Um, but also, how do we sort of help them um, understand what just, justice and equity actually look like when it arrives, right? Like, how do we help them sort of avoid some mm. template activism and really get into sort of more sophistication around dialogic sort of slower kinds of change? <laughs> um, I'm not saying mm. that as a way, that could be read as a very much of a way to sort of dampen student activist conversations. I'm not saying that. But I am saying um, it's not it's not wrestling power from the haves and then and the have-nots have all the power. Like, how do we sort of play with this thing, put it in the center, um, talk about what people's real needs are. And so I think that's a hard conversation for all of us to have. I could use training on that myself. Um, mm -hmm. and, then how to, and then how within all that we teach people to speak truth to power and then surround when you have power, how do you surround yourself with people capable of calling you on your bullshit, right, your BS, um, as they say. So I don't know. There's a lot of conversations around this that we need to have. What are what do you all think of what students and student affairs people need? What what comes to your mind? Well, I mean, I think that recognizing power and authority is something that doesn't happen at all in a mm. lot of in a lot of uh, particularly co-curricular leadership programs. And so I mm -hmm. think that the you know the sort of even just your initial thought of saying that like you know in many ways your definition of power is the same as other people's definition of leadership. Mm -hmm. You know, like that in itself is a pretty interesting revelation. Um, you know, John has said before that he just fundamentally thinks that power isn't talked enough about in relation mm -hmm. to leadership, and I, and I, and I think that's right. Um, so, I mean, that's a, I think that that's a starting point, you know, that the idea of, you know, particularly with positional leadership, if there is, you know, as we sort of talked about earlier, it's like, perhaps impossible to have uh, authority without power. And so, you know, what does that mean? What does it mean that you inherently have, like, that you have, that you have, whether it feels meager or whether you actually feel like you're being sort of dragged along in this authority role or not? Like, what does it mean that you have that power over folks? Um, you know, I, I don't know that that's, you know, I don't know that that's discussed enough. So. Well, even just information, like how to critically analyze sources of information, is a huge form of power, right? Who can figure out the right kind of sources needed for the right kind of problem at the right time? And like how we teach that, um, how we teach students to like own their power but not oversell it. Like I, I have this weird thing where I start my classes with like, who am I to teach leadership? <laughs> like, I, you know, who, what do you know about me? And students never, I, I have no credibility. Like they never Google me, they have no idea who I am. And yet I'm supposed to teach them all of these things. And, and so I, try to debunk that first class and say, guess what, I've never run a Fortune 500 company. I've never been a brigadier general in the military. I've never, and then they start looking, especially if you have younger students, who, well, why are you here? <laughs> you know? mm. They sort of have this assumption of credibility because you stand at the front of the classroom, but it engages it. And here's some things I do know a lot about. You know, I spent 25 years studying this stuff, and here's, I'm a theorist, and et cetera. Um, and like, what, is the, what are the limits of that, and what are the spaces of that? But the, we don't have those conversations enough, I think, people are very vulnerable to someone who comes in and is charismatic and snazzy and tells them what to do. Um, and we've got to help people sort of burst that bubble and um, be more critical in the work. Mm. 
Well, yeah, that sounds like heroism more than leadership. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. It, well, well, from what I know about you, it seems very aligned that you would start your class by undermining your own credibility. So that, <laughs> that seems right. Yeah. But you see, look on their faces, they're like, yeah, what do you, why am I, can I drop? Is it do you like to drop? <laughs> I really thought you were a brigadier general. I really thought that's what <laughs> But then I, I was like, have you, I, I try to teach them that should be a standard practice is Google your faculty and what are the perspectives that they're trying to sell. You know, I'll say, here's what I'm trying to sell you. You don't have to buy it. But the idea that I'm agenda-free is ridiculous. Of course I have agendas, and so I try to make those as explicit as possible. So, again, that's a form of sort of destabilizing the traditional faculty power. Do you, but do you think that that Googling business is like would run against exposure or difference, which you advocated earlier, you know, was a big takeaway from MSL? You know, like is that just how people get sort of in feedback loops? Oh, I see. So, uh, um, and I usually tell them after they already signed up, for that, like if that's how they were choosing their classes, that would be interesting. You could create echo chambers, right, where they only hear their own mm-hmm. ideas ever again. I totally see where you're going with that. Um, yeah. What I more meant was, um, how do you understand the positionality and experiences of people who you're choosing to spend your time with? So, uh, yeah, you could take it both ways. <laughs> uh, I didn't respond to your uh, to your piece about grit earlier. I think the fundamental issue with that concept that people uh, are very into right now is that it 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 has been developed from a deficit mindset. I think it is like an I think that it is like an anti millennial, anti snowflake. You know, suck it up you know, suck it up and, you know, and move on with life. Things used to be harder. I think that that is where that has come from, and now it's manifested itself as this, like, other idea and concept that people mm-hmm. talk about that sounds, like, more innocuous, but is actually the manifestation of a real sort of, you know, I mean, I don't know if it's a hostility or just a this is a problem that needs to be fixed kind of thing, but I think it's born out of a fundamental misunderstanding of, of folks. So. You don't see me, but I'm snapping tears for what you just said. Yes. And, I mean, mm-hmm. I think that's the danger with all of this is it feels really palatable. It, it makes common sense. And this is Dugan's whole thing about hegemonic. There are hegemonic views about power, right? There is this, like, mm-hmm. master normative about what exercise of power should look like and how we solve these problems. And I think grid and, as I said, lean in. I give, I require lean in in my women's leadership class. And the students read it. They're like, it's like, that was the best read ever. We love that. <laughs> they just love it. And then... I started asking questions like, well, what about what we talked about around systemic change and blaming the person and, and critical consciousness? And then they read, then I have them read all the critiques, and then they're like, you tricked us. Like, they feel very tricked, right? Um, mm. But then they're, like, really wary for the rest of the semester, and they're like, I'm never going to not read anything with a critical lens again. Like, when they say that, I know I've done my job, right? Um, is that sometimes we have to give them the experience of sort of falling for it and then pulling back and sort of understanding the limitations of something for them to sort of be more wary next time, I guess. Hmm. So, but I think you're absolutely right. It, it, it feels like an antidote and a solution when really it is just perpetuating the, de- the de- pervasive deficit ideology. And people should all go look up Paul Gorski's work. It gives away a lot of his intellectual thinking about some of this stuff in an effort to try to change the world. Hmm. All righty. Well, thanks to everyone for joining us for the National Leadership Podcast presented by the National Student Leadership Program Knowledge Community. And thanks to Dr. Julian, sincerely one of my favorite people in the leadership world. You can connect with Julie on Twitter at Julie underscore GMU. That's like George Mason University. 
And we'll be following soon in later episodes with several other great guests in the Foundational Leadership Questions series. You can get more information about the Student Leadership Program's Knowledge Community on our various social media outlets, including Facebook.com, backslash SALEAD, on Twitter at NASPA SLPKC, and on Instagram at NASPA underscore SLPKC. And you can also connect with me on Twitter. I'm at, uh, at Miles, M-Y-L-E-S, underscore Surrett, S-U-R-R-E-T-T. -T. Bonus points for creativity on that handle. And finally, if you're interested in being a guest on the podcast, we'd love to hear about your program, so please shoot an email to NASPA Leader Podcast at gmail.com. Thanks, Julie. Thank you.